Hey, welcome back to the Comeback Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Connor, and I am delighted to be welcomed by Selini Alcock. Selini is a content writer, digital and video producer, product maker, and designer writer. She has interviewed CEOs and written stories for C Magazine in Vietnam and for The Wham Agency in London. We're going to discuss her work, which includes documentary film, Vietnam, where she's lived on and off since 2005. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Yeah, you've lived here since 2005 on and off. Yes, that is correct. However, I've had a very strange destiny with Vietnam. So I chose, I actually chose to move to Phnom Penh. I bought a one-way ticket to Phnom Penh in 2005 after I did a quick sort of trip to Laos, Cambodia, uh, Bangkok and Singapore in 2004 and I had a kind of epiphany moment in uh, Siem Reap as I was like coming back from Angkor Wat and I went that's it I'm moving to Phnom Penh and I was living in Sydney at the time and I was in a relationship and I just I don't know I just had this moment where I was like I'm moving to Phnom Penh but then I ended up in Vietnam so I lived in Vietnam from 2005 till 2010 and then I said bye bye it's over and then uh, through a series of events which we may or may not discuss later <laughs> I came back again in 2011 right. so I came for a quick trip and then I, I met somebody and then I ended up living back here and then I lived here again till 2017 and then I left again thinking bye-bye Vietnam <laughs> we're done and then I came back at the very end of 2019 just before COVID and have been yeah. here since. We might end up getting upon this later but why do you think Vietnam keeps calling you back when you try and say bye-bye but you come back for a second and then a third time? I don't know, you know, I've actually pondered that question a few times and strangely enough, the reasons so far that have, that have called me back have been love-related. However, I do feel like a sort of a deeper, I don't think that's the sort of the reason there, the, the, maybe the externals, but I do feel a deeper connection, destiny perhaps with, with Vietnam that maybe I can't always explain. Maybe I was Vietnamese in a past <laughs> life. I'm tired of having a very good Vietnamese accent. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So maybe there's something in yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who knows if we go like into the ancient. <laughs> but what we do usually do is, from the outset, just discuss the guest background. I believe you're from Sydney. Correct. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about your upbringing there? Sure. I mean, I had a very sort of um, lovely and simple upbringing. I lived um, very close to the heart of Sydney. You know, all the schools that I went to were very close to the centre of Sydney. So. You know, I was well and truly a Sydney girl in the sense of, um, you know, being not so much suburban, close to the inner city. Um, I, I mean, I did do a little bit of, uh, you know, I, you mentioned earlier that I was a documentary filmmaker. So the only time that I lived outside of Sydney in like my sort of first, you know, decades of life was when I embarked on this adventure to make a documentary film about a gold mine. So I, I ended up living in northern New South Wales, which borders Queensland, closer to sort of Brisbane. Um, apart from that, I always, you know, apart from a bit of travelling, I always lived my life in Sydney. I always lived very close to the centre of the city. The city. Um, so, you know, it's a city I love, but the thing is, um, I actually, one of the places that I lived in, which is quite famous around the world, which is Bondi Beach. Yeah which is quite well known. I lived there for about six years and I actually lived there up until the 2000 Olympics and Bondi Beach hosted the volleyball competition. And at that time, um, I really noticed 
Because when I first, I mean, I grew up in Sydney in the 1980s. Now I'm revealing my age. <laughs> and it was a city of like one million people. Like it's a city of about six million people now. So like a lot of cities around the world, it's really, you know, expanded and exploded. But at that time, you know, people weren't so... I mean, it, it was beautiful real estate always because we've got Sydney Harbour and it was always beautiful, but people weren't so obsessed with necessarily owning a part of it. So it was a much more kind of big country town kind of feel. The whole of Australia was like that. Right, I see. We still kind of saw ourselves as, you know, Australians have a weird relationship to the rest of the world because we know that we're so removed from the rest of the world, yet at the same time we're sort of part of, you know, first world Western culture. Yeah, but we're sort sure. of not... You know, like one of our prime ministers described Australia as the arse end of the world. Which, <laughs> so um, growing up in Sydney, you know, like it was, it, was, it was a great city. I mean, there were a lot of like really fantastic and underground things about it. But as I was saying, when the Olympics came in 2000, I really saw the city change because it went from like this sort of big country town to an international city. And there were a lot of positive things that happened, but then it became a much more expensive city. And that's why today it's, it's one of the most, you know, um, expensive cities in the world to live in. It's up there with like London, New York. Um, so it changed a lot. So I don't relate to it as much as I did as when I was growing up. So I think in some ways I have a nostalgic yeah, no, connection I can, I can to imagine, it. I can imagine, yeah. I'm trying to think mm. of, say, looking back at a childhood that's been in a certain place that's changed so dramatically over time, it would be tricky to look back and try and actually, you know, make a way there when it is evolving, like you say, with a new international setup, six million rather than one million, and all the change can be hard to adjust to. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I still love it. I just yeah, don't. Sure. I mean, I suppose we can grow out of places. I mean, you can be from a place. Yeah. I mean, many, like, obviously, a lot of expats in Vietnam are from a place and have even lived in another place. You know, even Vietnamese people have lived in France or America yeah, or whatever. Course. So you can be from a place, but you don't necessarily forever see it as your, your home. You know, eternal home. Yeah, and we are going to touch upon that concept later on in the discussion. But what interested me, based on what you do for your work now, is that I saw that at university you did languages. Now, why did you choose that route of studying languages at university? Well, that's not completely correct. Okay. I studied communications at ah. university. I did a Bachelor of Communications and I majored in film. But then I also did a double major in French. So, yes, I, um, I was very much influenced by my mother's love of French. She encouraged me to learn French for some reason. I mean, I always liked languages. I did Indonesian as well when I was at school. And I can speak a little bit of Vietnamese and I've studied a bit of Spanish and I've always been into languages, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I did French to honours level because, I don't know, I just was really obsessed with learning a language. And then I went there as an exchange student. And then also when I did my honours year, I got a, um, like a grant from the French embassy. And I went and I did research in France and also in West Africa because I actually did my thesis topic on... Uh, black African cinema from former French colonial Africa. So right, it's quite okay. a specific topic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you specify that area? Because that is very specific, as you said. In in Africa or yeah, French? Yeah, yeah, uh, both Africa and France. Um, well, when I did my honours year, I actually changed universities because I went to a better French department. So I went to the University of New South Wales, and I got this great um, uh, like advisor. And 
she sort of introduced me to, I mean, I had no idea about North Africa. I was only like, like 20, 19, 20 at that time. I, I didn't have much of a concept of North Africa or West Africa at that age. And she started to introduce me to some things about, um, you know, Algeria, Morocco. And as I started to research, I came across cinema from um, mainly places like Senegal, uh, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, uh, Mali. And as I sort of got into it, I said, oh, this is really interesting. And I wanted to look at the um, cinema. There was this kind of like uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was this burgeoning scene in both music and film coming out of West Africa, which was all former French, so black Africa, not sort of northern, you know, Arab or they call the Le Maghreb actually, um, not out of that area. And I wanted to look at how much had it, had it been influenced by uh, colonial or neo-colonial um, policies and influences. So I wanted to look at the cinema and whether um, black African people were able to make a cinema for their own country that was not affected by financing policies or, you know, like a colonial power being over them right, so it was interesting so I studied a number of different filmmakers and then I because I got this grant I ended up going to uh, Burkina Faso where they hold a big um, festival every two years called Fespaco um, and to Abidjan in Ivory Coast that was pretty wild I yeah. had a near-death experience there do you I almost died <laughs> do you mind telling me more because just when you say a near-death experience I'm like curiosity just takes over I've had two experiences in my life where I probably should have died and didn't and that was the first one I met these basically I went I mean like I'm a white woman I went at 21 as a white girl by myself into the heart of black Africa with nobody else and so I pretty much remember at the time thinking okay there's a, there's a guardian angel or there's a bubble around me protecting me on my travels and I will just sort of be guided to do whatever. Now what happened was I met a few people and then I ended up meeting these two guys literally in the street because I literally walked out into the street. Like I got a hotel, so I was in Abidjan, which there's a, there's a part of Abidjan that's pretty dangerous and I walked out into the street and I thought, well, I'm not going to cope a week by myself doing this by myself. Like I need some local people. So I kind of, you know, felt my way through it and eventually I met these two guys and they went, yeah, we, you know, we're going to look after you and da, da, da. I was, it was all in French. I was practicing my French. And so they became like my two brothers. And then they said, okay, we're going to show you how to party. And I went, yeah, okay. <laughs> I think I spent more time actually partying than I did researching yeah, yeah. when I was in Abidjan. They were like, we're going to show you how to party African style. I was like, okay, great. Let's do this. And so we had this one night where we were like going from, you know, one place to the next place. It was like a night out with these guys. I mean, this, they said this was like a typical night out was seriously, you start at like, you know, six or seven and you're still going 8 a.m. the next day and you're, it's a bit like Saigon, isn't it? Right, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I'm getting broma vibes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're at the next place and the next place. And anyway, so they took me to this place and we got in there and I just remember being there for not very long, for about 10 minutes and sitting in some kind of armchair lounge thing. And the next thing I know, there were just, it was like people were screaming, there was like scrambling. And I just remember the sensation of being pulled and dragged. And then 
the next thing I remember being in a taxi and them saying, you know, we got you out of there. Are you okay? Can you wake up? Are you okay? And someone had released this drug, which at the time I remember them saying it was something like cryogen or something weird like that. So they release this, it's like a gas. They release a gas and then basically, so someone goes in there, releases this gas and then everybody passes out because if you inhale enough of it, you'll pass out. And then they just go around robbing people. Now these two guys, I mean, obviously they could have used it as a moment to take advantage of me, but they didn't. They, they truly had my back. So they grabbed me because they knew what was happening. And then they, they put me into the taxi. And so I just remember being out of it for like a minute or something. Do you know what I mean? I don't remember yeah, yeah, yeah. one minute I'm in the bar and the next minute I'm feeling like foggy in the taxi. So they were like, if we left you there or you stayed there, you would pass out and you can die from it. Because I think, I don't know what it does exactly. Sure. But um, yeah, that was my first sort of near-death experience. And then we, we went off and then we just continued partying after that. Right. <laughs> you weren't put off at all? No. And I actually, you know what? I had a really interesting experience. I actually... Um, the most humbling experience I've ever had because, you know, obviously I'm a white woman. I don't know why, but I was wearing white jeans of all things when I was in um, Africa. And walking around with these guys, we did a lot of walking around in these streets. And, you know, a lot of the areas were quite slummy back then because it was, it was early 90s, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, Ivory Coast had a lot of civil wars and coup d'etats and things going on and stuff. And there was this one area, I think it was called Treshville, which was really ghetto dangerous. They were like, just don't even go near that area. But we did a lot of walking around the streets and there were a lot of open... Uh, it was like this when I went to Phnom Penh. I don't know if it's still like that. There were kind of... It's not like sewers, but there were like open drains. You know what I mean? It's just full of filth. Yeah, okay. It's just black. Yucky water. Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, I actually fell into one of these. I actually walked. So to, to cross a lot of these open sewers, they just have a couple of planks of wood. And so I was, you know, I'm a bit of a talkaholic. I think I was too busy talking and not focusing on walking. And I literally went straight down into one of these open drain things. Jesus. Yeah. And it, it went all the way up to my neck, quite literally. But my brothers, who were always there to save me, literally grabbed me and before I was actually sort of submerged, they put, they hauled me out. The thing is, when I came out, my black jeans, my white jeans were now very black. And this woman was sort of around the corner, started laughing, like, you know, that kind of like cackle that yeah, yeah. African people have, laughing her head off, pointing at me, laughing her head off that there was the whitey who'd fallen in the open drain and she had a hose and she hosed me down. I remember standing there because I seriously had all this black, it was like this horrible black tar. I mean, it was yeah, disgusting, it right? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was gross. So she's hosing me down in the street, laughing her head off, and I go, okay, this, this is fine, this is good. <laughs> I'm the stupid whitey here. So I got hosed down and then they went, oh, fuck, man, you know, are you okay? Um, we better go back to the hotel now because, you know, you need to take these clothes off because we've got to continue partying, right? Because the, the agenda was let's continue partying. Take you back to the hotel, have a shower, get some new clothes on, and we'll go partying again. So I go, okay. So I go back to the hotel. This is my, like, you know, $10 hotel or whatever that I've booked myself. And it was a bit dodgy previously when I'd gone to the shower. I noticed it wasn't draining out so well. But there's me scrubbing 
black shit off my skin. I think I literally threw these clothes out. I mean, they were disgusting. I took them off, had in the shower, in the shower for 10, 20 minutes or whatever. Finally get out. When I walk into the room, the room is now flooded, right? Because it just was dodgy. <laughs> Didn't yeah, drain properly. Right, okay, yeah. So now I've got a flooded room. So then I like go down. I'm like, oh, shit, you know. So this is, you know. 11 o'clock on a whatever night or whatever and they're like oh okay yeah no problem you know we just change the room so we change the room i change the clothes and then i go back down they're like okay let's let's continue partying and i think it was just of that age where i was so excited yeah. to be there that i just no matter what happened to me it was just like next next place i just i, I don't There's think i did much research that week but i did a lot of partying and i i had a really amazing time these guys really showed me the way yeah yeah yeah. That does sound interesting, especially like at that age. I guess you care less about, you know, dangerous stuff, for example, like going down into that sewer or anything like that, or the room being flooded. Like your mind's just like, yeah, let's party again. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, there's no like, you know, back then, I often talk about this with people, and I think people who were, who traveled when mobile phones and the internet didn't exist, mm. you didn't, or even like phones, you know, you had to send a telegram, literally. I mean, I remember getting a telegram from a boyfriend once when I was in Paris. That was like a big deal. Yeah. Getting a telegram. I mean, that's just bizarre. That seems like something out of like, yeah, yeah. you know, early nine, 1900s or yeah, something, you know, yeah, like yeah. it seems so old school. Even the concept, but literally yeah. you just couldn't, you couldn't connect with people. You couldn't look places up. You couldn't find a place. You, you had a very random experience because you're kind of like, well, I'm here and I'll exit out the front door and I'll walk. Because how else do you navigate? I mean, you might have a book, mm. Lonely Planet or something, but otherwise you have to walk out the front door and either walk or get in a vehicle to get somewhere and try and discover something. Yeah. No. You can't hook up with anybody. Yeah. You, you've really got to, like, literally wave at someone in a, in a bar or a street and go, hello, will you be my friend? That's mad. Yeah. yeah. And that's how you, you know, you get around. You got around, yeah. I was born in 97, so I missed this whole kind of era, but I'm always, I kind of yearn for it. I know, obviously, it's never going to happen because the way the world's changed, but I kind of feel like I would prefer it in a yeah, way. But you just put your phone away for a night. You just forget, you leave your phone at home, yeah. and you just, you just go out and you go, or it's like when your phone runs out of battery. Yeah, yeah. Then you've just got to go with whatever's happening. Just make sure you have a bit of cash. Yeah, true, actually. And then you, you, you can have that experience because now you're just like you're randomly bumping into people and they go, we're going to this place. And you go, where is that place? How do I get there? Can I come with you? Or, you know, or, you know, sure, yeah. you can't get a grab if you don't have a, a phone. But you can still... Wave down a grab, maybe. Yeah. You just get a taxi yeah. or, or you just say... You can still do it. Yeah, no, that's it's just, true. Yeah. It's really, it's a conscious decision to say, I don't need to prepare and look up everything I'm doing. I can allow the experience to be random and right, yeah. unknown and uncheckable and unchangeable. It's, it's random now. It's, it's whoever I'm going to meet or whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Are you more spontaneous then as a person? I know that's quite tricky to answer and possibly quite broad, but do you think you're more spontaneous or more of a planner? I don't think because of my generation that I'm more sp spontaneous. I think because of my personality, I'm quite a spontaneous, go-with-the-flow kind of person. But I think that's more to do with my personality. I don't think that's necessarily a generational thing. I mean, maybe people who were in an era where they didn't 
couldn't plan things as much? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Yeah, but I, I think know. some people like to have everything planned, whether it's, you know, what they do in their day or their, their work day or their social time. You know, they want to know they're meeting so-and-so at this time and then at this time they're going to this place. I'm more like, I'll get to this place at this time and then I know there's this as a possibility. But if I should happen to meet this person and they go, hey, there's this party at this place or whatever, I'll go. Yeah. Just for the like, excitement of something that I'm not expecting because I like to do unexpected random things because that gives me more thrill. Yeah. Do you think that transitions well into being a freelancer? Do you think that approach is better than perhaps being like a rigid planner, having that kind of spontaneous mindset? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I would put it the other way around. I would say because I have that mindset, it probably lends me to being a freelancer more than someone that has a rigid mindset and wants a full-time job and security and all of those things. Maybe I can exist in the world with more chaos and you know, unknown, unforeseen events, instability than yeah, sure. someone that needs stability and needs to know that they have this job and it pays this much and they turn up at this time and they finish at this time, I'm more able to go, oh, well, I got this freelance job and then that, and then next week I've got nothing and then that week I've got three jobs and mm. I'm okay with that. Some, right, people aren't. Okay. Some people need their security blanket. Absolutely, yeah. And have you, because we, we've kind of, it's a tricky one because we started out at Vietnam, which is now, and mm. then we mentioned when you were younger, say in your early 20s in Africa. Mm. In between that period, and I know that's yeah. like quite quite broad, were you still um, doing like freelancing in that during that, or have you mixed between the 9 to 5 freelance, 9 to 5 freelance, or has it been predominantly the latter? Um, I have had like a 9 to 5 job, but I didn't last very long. Right. And I worked, so this this boss that I had is actually my boss currently for Wham Agency, and he's the greatest boss I've ever had, if he happens to be listening, <laughs> Darren. Um, but I worked full-time doing sort of in the early days of like website development, so it was kind of mid-90s. And I had a full-time job, and I went to an office, and it was actually a really exciting job. But I couldn't handle going to the same office every day. I just, just I knew in my sort of early mid-20s that... It didn't. It it made me mentally um, gave me mental health problems. Basically, oh, yeah. some people love that, you know, and they could spend twenty years in the same office or with the same company. I just could not handle it. It made me um, unhinged. So even though I've had, in some ways, a more uncertain and maybe not as secure life as other people, I think it was ultimately, you know, in tune with who I am as a person, as a soul or whatever, whatever my journey was, was meant to be. And I'm okay with that, you know, because I think I would have just um, felt trapped and... Suffocated. Yeah, and stuck. Yeah. And it's not that I don't want to work. It's just I couldn't do that traditional nine-to-five office job. So the longest job I held down was probably for about like 18 months to two years in the same job. I mean, I had jobs that lasted longer than that, but they were more like permanent part-time or, or casual. So, you know, I stayed longer at other jobs. It's just that, that that same job as an employee, I could only last sort of 18 months to two years. Right, but I also so. ran a business here, and that I could turn up to every day because it was different, because I was being more, you know, entrepreneurial. 
Yeah. But being an employee and turning up to a workplace, I don't think I'll ever really be able to do it again. Right, I see what I you think mean. It's yeah. too far gone now. I'm just. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it depends, obviously, like, on mindset and experience. After a while, you think, yeah, I couldn't go back to that old regiment because you've seen something new. You know what suits you after a while. And if you stick to that, then you should be okay. You should be on the right path, especially if it is you know, devised for you, perhaps by the universe or by yourself, whoever is in charge. Um, there are quite a few things there, like you are a writer, you have interviewed CEOs from magazines, documentary filmmaker. I don't really know like where to begin. Uh, I guess, first question, how do you manage to manage your time so that you manage to do all of these effectively? Well, I don't do them all at the same time. At the moment, I'm doing, I'm focusing on writing. And the reason I'm focusing on that is because I did actually have a shared business. I had a small printing and sewing factory, um, which I co-ran with my you know, ex-partner, but we were business partners as well. Um, and we ran that for nine years. And then in May 2021, last year, just prior to that terrible lockdown, yeah. if you were here, that we all went through, everything, basically, the shit hit the fan. And um, our production manager, who had been with us for the entire nine years, uh, went into sabotage mode and the whole thing exploded and it was very dramatic and it sort of collapsed basically as we went into lockdown and of course we couldn't operate for four months so we lost our client and then I had actually started a brand um, around 2013 that I sold to tourists so when the first wave of COVID occurred in around March 2020 I lost a substantial amount of income at that time so that was the first sort of decline and then the worst part was when we went into that lockdown in June 2021 yeah, and then that, that was sort of the collapse. We ended up moving all of our stuff into a sort of storage space so we're sort of looking at now that tourists are coming back, I'm looking at how can I revive it. So the answer to your question is that because I was in that lockdown like everybody and I no longer had a business and an income from it, I was like well what am I going to do? How am I going to survive? Like I'm not allowed to go in, out into the streets and get a job. And I'd actually started doing this newsletter, I mentioned my old boss, who works for an agency in the UK, uh, or he's the sort of creative director of it. And I started doing a newsletter, and then I thought, oh, okay, well look, you know, I'm getting okay at writing that newsletter, maybe I can get other writing jobs. So I basically started looking for other writing jobs, and then I saw this, um, oh sorry, ad for um, writing for a business magazine. And I contacted the guy and sent him a, lot, a very slightly overly long email. And he said, thank you for your very long email. <laughs> <laughs> and so he gave me a chance. And he said, okay, we need you to interview a CEO and write a profile story. And so I interviewed the CEO. He's a Pakistani man. His name is Jahan Zib Khan. He's the CEO of Suntory PepsiCo, which is a joint venture between um, Suntory and PepsiCo. And um, it was during the lockdown, so I did it you know, over Microsoft Teams or something. And that man totally inspired me. I was blown away by his pearls of wisdom. And so I wrote the story and the story was quite successful um, because I found him pretty inspirational. So I kind of wrote it from that um, perspective. And so then I got another CEO story and then I got offered um, by the editor of the magazine to co-write a cover story on the mindset mindset of a CEO, which was not interviewing CEOs, but doing research into kind of what makes a CEO a CEO from a, you know, 
sociological, psychological perspective. And then I ended up writing it by myself, which is the first time I've ever written a big story. And it was quite hard, you know, I had to do a lot of research. Um, But it was fascinating and I discovered that, uh, I mean, the statistics vary, but I discovered that about in terms of like your Fortune 500 or S&P 500 CEO in the US, about 21% of them are classified as psychopaths, which is quite a high rate. And it's the same rate as prison inmates. Hmm. Right, okay. I wouldn't have expected that, to be honest with you. No. Yeah. And politicians are not far behind. No, that doesn't surprise me, actually. Mm. <laughs> not, especially with what's going on in the UK. Y- yes, yeah. yeah. And the world all over. Yes, but, um, yeah, yeah. I was just actually about to ask you... So that's how I got into the writing, and then I just, yeah. you know, kind of... It's not... I actually want to be a screenwriter, because as I said, I studied film. So when I've got my life a bit more on track... In my free time, I'd like to write um, screenplays. That, yeah. That's my passion. That's your passion. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I do want to delve more into film and screenplays and why it's your passion specifically. But before that, um, before that statistic, I was going to ask you about the key traits required to be a CEO from mm. what makes a CEO. Now, <laughs> except for like, you know, the psychopath mm. <laughs> analogy, um, what does make a CEO based on your research, do you think? Yeah, it is an interesting question. I mean, I think the thing about being a CEO is it's like you almost have to be a jack of all trades, as in like, you know, being a chief financial officer, for example, you have to have specific skills in finances and tax or whatever. So you have to be quite specified. But to be a CEO, you actually have to be quite well-rounded. So you have to have people skills. That's why, I mean, this is where the psychopathy or the narcissism comes into play because in some ways you have to be quite a charismatic individual and if you look at narcissists and psychopaths a lot of them are you know charismatic yeah um so that but that's not to say that all you know ceos are narcissists or psychopaths let's just you know disclaimer (laughs) disclaimer there but you definitely would have to have the ability to talk to people, to be charismatic, to, I mean, you're the leader, you know, you're basically um, the captain of the ship, so to speak. So you have to be a good communicator, you have to be able to lead all of these people. At the same time, you, you know, I need to refer to my, now I'm thinking, like, at the same time, I mean, it's debatable whether, this is one of the things is like, one area I went into in my article was about empathy. Mm. Because the classic thing about also referring back to the psychopath is they lack empathy. And the thing is, if you are running a huge corporation, a huge multi, multinational corporation in America, in fact, not having empathy is an asset. Because if you need to cut, if you need to literally um, cull yeah. thousands of jobs and, and have a cutthroat mentality towards cutting out employees or making those kind of cutthroat decisions... In some ways, you need to lack empathy. So the whole movement at the moment is this sort of push to create leaders who are more empathetic. Okay, So you could say that having empathy is an important part of being a CEO because you're dealing with people. Yeah, of course. But then at the same time, the traditional model from this sort of global MNC model is lacking in empathy. So that's another aspect. I think uh, obviously you have to be... I mean, I think a lot of these things are changing. I mean, a lot of the research that I did was looking into, you know, leadership in the era that we're in, in, in that we're in at present. Is that this old uh, sort of hierarchical um, 
kind of, you know, if you look at a lot of the, again, back to the US model, it's still a very white, male-dominated area. So even though, I mean, there was a report that I looked at that compared um, early 2000s to, you know, 2021 or something like that. And the number of, you know, African-Americans, women, Asian-Americans, um, basically people who weren't white or male, um, the increase was very insubstantial. It was very small. And so even like in the US, I think it's only something like 6% of CEOs are women. So the problem is that we're still in this kind of old 20th century patriarchal, hierarchical structure. But I think a lot of that is actually breaking down at the moment because you have, I mean, you have the entrepreneur CEO because you have a lot of obviously startups that are, you know, happening in these last years. So you have the, the model of the entrepreneur CEO, which is a bit different. So there's more room for people to break down those old structures and and lead in a different different way. So I think it's changing. I mean, I think obviously you know, the question about what makes a great leader, it's, it's really hard to know because um, a lot of people who lead, effectively lead and effectively lead very successful companies, but are they actually nice human beings or effective leaders? Mm. We don't know. They can just be autocrats who say, I have this vision. I mean, they can be highly intelligent people like Steve Jobs, who is you know, incredibly visionary and incredibly intelligent, but not always the nicest person. You know, he was also um, an asshole at times. So whether that we revere these people as great leaders or not, I mean, they they achieved great feats, they made a lot of money, but were they great leaders? At the end of the day, we don't know. Yeah, it just depends true. on the lens that you know. You know what I mean. That yeah. you're looking through. So. We never get like the full picture of like their home life specifically, or any other areas. Just for example, their company, and obviously that can be twisted or manipulated in whatever way we think it to be, and look through mm. whatever lens. So yeah, I definitely see the paradox here. Um, because I interviewed another CEO, a woman who's the CEO of Standard Standard Chartered Bank here in Vietnam, and she described herself as a kind of, or I called her the servant leader. So she's of a generation where she believes in like coaching, mentoring and going to say younger generations, you know, millennials or, you know, even younger now and saying, what can I do for you? Like, how can I help you on your journey? Rather than I'm the boss, I know more than you, I'm older than you, I'm more experienced than you, you do what I say. Mm. So I'm saying that whole model is being broken down. There are still a lot of people that obviously want to follow that model because they think they've earned their right after however many years on the planet. They think, yeah, I know yeah. more, you listen to me, don't question me. But I think the really, you know, I don't know, I mean, I don't know someone like, what's his name, um, Richard Branson. Yeah, yeah. Someone like him is obviously more open to... Um, Flexibility. Yeah, and hearing what other people have to say and, and always taking on board new ideas. And, I'm, and for me, that's an effective leader is someone that's very open-minded. Absolutely. And knows how to bring on board other people, delegate to them and rise them up to a sort of similar level and say, well, you carry that, you know, you take care of that department. Yeah. You do sure. that department and you run that and I'll just, you know, oversee it. Not Not that sort of autocratic style leader model yeah yeah absolutely and i'm guessing i'm going to just make an assumption here that from your traveling and from your work in various different parts of the world 
that you have also cultivated quite an open mind yourself. Would you say mm. that's correct? Sure, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm a pretty open-minded person. Yeah, no, I can definitely kind of like see the link here. And does that translate into your film? Um, In terms of the projects you do, like do you do a variety of different ones from your experience? Well, I haven't actually, I mean, I made some documentary films. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant, documentary movie films. I think the nature of a documentary filmmaker is somebody who likes to ask questions. Mm. I mean, if you're a writing a script, sure, you can write a really way out story and like actually The Big Lebowski is, we were, I was talking about it earlier today, The Big Lebowski is one of my favourite films. I was talking about Jeff Bridges with somebody earlier today. It's just, it's, I just, I just love that film because it's kind of a bit left field. Um, so, I mean, you can be a really left field storyteller and tell a crazy story about crazy characters and that can express your open-mindedness open because you're willing to show the full um, sort of gamut of expression, of, you know, of human expression. Um, but as a documentary filmmaker, I think you've got a curiosity and you're inquisitive and you're, it's a bit like a hypothesis. You say, oh, well, what about this question and how do we seek to answer that question? So you're basically going and filming and observing about, I mean, it depends on what style of documentary you do, but to say you do sort of observational style, you know, documentary, you're basically being, I mean, I studied theories of documentary and stuff, but you're basically being as much as you can be a fly on the wall. That doesn't really exist right, because yeah. there's this whole thing of, the observer and the observed and the observed is always conscious of being observed so you can never truly be your authentic self how you it's the same with the reality tv show you know how you act in front of a camera is how you is different from how you would act behind closed doors with nobody watching you like knowing a hundred percent that nobody is watching you you're yeah. always going to act differently or your moments of quiet contemplation are going to be different from when you know that you've got a camera on you. Yeah. I mean, you can get close, but I don't think you can ever, so, you know, I don't think you can ever get fully to the truth of how someone would behave in their own time. But I think some people are less self-conscious than others. I think we live in an era where people are a lot more, um, especially younger generations, they're kind of almost raised to perform in front of the camera because you've yeah, got TikTok, yeah. you've got YouTube. So you're just kind of used to being like, you know, it's no big deal. Hey, I'm on YouTube, I'm on TikTok or whatever. It's no big deal now. So there's more of a relaxed sense. But is it really being your true self? Are you being observed in a true sense? No. And then if you go like even deeper to say something like, you know, looking at um, theories of quantum physics and stuff, you know, the observer and the observed, the observed is always going to be changed by the fact that there's an observer. And even the fact that even if you just put your own camera on yourself and you filmed yourself, but you knew yeah, yeah. you were then going to upload that and put it onto a platform and people are going to watch it. You already know, you're already conscious that I need to act this way or look this way yeah. or say these things because I know I'm going to be observed. So documentary is a very tricky thing because you try to get to the truth of people and, you know, sometimes journalists and documentary filmmakers can be a bit full of themselves because they're trying to, particularly in that maybe a 20th century model of it because now everything's changed with yeah, social yeah. media. But as I say, an old-fashioned model of that where, you know, you did sort of reportage, you know, journalists did sort of reportage stories or documentary filmmakers did raw 
footage and interviewing and filming and stuff, they felt like they were getting, you know, as close to the truth as possible. But whether that is actually possible or not, I mean, maybe we all have a persona and maybe these new platforms are really the true true platform for human expression, which is that we all have, we all wear masks and yeah, we all have yeah. personas and maybe that's more authentic than this observing someone. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's hard to know. Uh, and I do know what you mean, yeah. And does it ever frustrate you or do you accept that that's the part of the way the world's going with the new generation being used to the exposure and playing like caricatures, shall we say? Does that ever frustrate you as a documentary make filmmaker where you kind of know that it's not the truth that you want to represent or... No, I think, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think there is... Um, it doesn't bother me at all because I think any... Really, I mean, like, that's judgment, you know, I mean, like, if you, I mean, that is a model that existed, I suppose, in 20th century, in the 20th century, pre-social um, media or pre, you know, we've got, like, what do you call it, um, like, non-linear platforms, right, you know what okay. I mean? Like, everything is, you know, with the World Wide Web, we, we went into, what do you call it? It's not, what's the word for non-linear? You know uh, what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I know what you mean, but I can't like say the word. It's, it's yeah. just... You know, before we lived in a kind of a, a linear structure, even, sure, yeah. you know, the way we edited things, the way you told stories, it was much more linear. So we're in a very non-linear thing where it's like one minute you're on that and then you're clicking on that and you're swiping up and down and just even the way you interact, you know what I mean? Mm. And, I, you know, I have a 10-year-old son and I see the way sometimes I'm like, feel like a total Luddite and I'm on my phone doing something. And he goes, what are you doing? You know, just you do this and you do that. And I just go... Yeah, man. <laughs> and I just go, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a different era. It's not like I go, it's better or worse. It's just a different era. Yeah, and when sure. I look at my son and how he um, sees things and absorbs information, I also see, like, he has a friend who watches a lot of YouTube videos and there's a lot of conspiracy, well, I call them conspiracy theories or whatever. There's a lot of misrepresented or, you know, un, what do you want to call it? There's a lot of bullshit yeah, okay. out there, right? <laughs> and he's telling me, you know, and Elon Musk is really an alien from Mars and this is happening and that's happening and D.B. Cooper and I'm like, who's D.B. Cooper? And I suddenly discovered D.B. Cooper is this great mystery and he knows all about D.B. Cooper. He's telling me all this stuff and I said, listen, his name's Bravas. I said, Bravas, you know, not everything that's on the internet or on YouTube is true. You realise that? Because no, I think it is true because blah, blah, blah. So that's the risk I see that it's very easy for younger kids. And I'm not saying they're like naive because my son is actually very savvy. He's different. He's kind of like, yeah, Bravas believes everything. He doesn't get it. Like a lot of it's bullshit. So I also think it comes down to personality. But he's absorbing it all as if this is all truth. Yeah, yeah. Because then he, that's right, he introduced me. Have you heard this story about this guy that apparently woke up in 2027 in Seville or somewhere in Spain and, and went to like train stations and hospitals and police stations? All these people were like, he was on Instagram saying, well, now I'll go and visit this place. And there was nobody there. Everything was running. There were lights on. There were... It was there was AC on or whatever you know these he could access these buildings but there were no people left and he was trapped in 2027 and he was the only person left in the world. I'm not seeing this. Yes, I know. And this kid introduced me introduces me to this and I'm like, okay. So I watched this you know half hour YouTube video and it was really interesting. 
And then there are all these theories, you know, about the meta, the metaverse and everything. Yeah, and the, yeah. the guy is actually just someone who's filming stuff for the metaverse and so they can remove people and everything. And, you know, but it, it's fascinating because basically you can, with the way media is now, you can really just construct any story. So it's a kind of fascinating era compared to, like, so back to your question, I've, I've gone in a roundabout way. The old model was, in a way, trying to present a truth. Right, okay. The new model is like, let's make up a story. Right. Really, so, I mean, there's yeah. just so much, if you look at, like, what, what is on the, you know, the interweb these mm. days, it's a bunch of stories. Some of them are true. Some of them are close, closer to the truth. But how would you know what to... You know, how would you, I mean, sure, you could go to BBC World Service or whatever or, you know, and try and get news on Russia, Ukraine. And then you could go on YouTube and go on a Vice channel and a whole lot of other things and conspiracy theories and see some stories that someone's done on Putin and, you know, whatever. And you could get a whole lot of alternative views. And how do you, how do you fact check those things? Yeah, how do you sure. know any of it is, is the truth? So I sort of don't really take it any of it as the truth anymore. It's like I try and filter it through my own lens of what I, you know, understand about the world, but I, I just, I actually don't really take a lot of it too seriously anymore. I'm just sort of like, yeah, it's kind of um, content. Right, I see what It's you're content now. We live in an era of content, you know? It's like you can't really go, well, that's true and that's not true and that's news and that's not news and that's false news and da, da, da. It's like we just live in an era of content and content generators. Yeah. So... In my own relationship to this stuff now, I just don't take it too seriously anymore. Right, I see. And can I ask you then, I know this is kind of backtracking slightly, about your general passion for film, for cinema, and for like documentary specifically. Why is this your passion? I suppose I always wanted to be a storyteller. And that's what I was saying, like, I'd still, my passion is still to be able to, you know, write for the screen. And I have done some of that and I have been working on some projects. Um, I think I just like, and I suppose it's just back to what I said previously, like content. I think people love, they love storytelling as an art form. And I think that's why, you know, whether it's a 20 second TikTok moment or, um, you know, a YouTube video or whatever, people just love consuming media and stories because I think that's that's part of the the journey like our journey on planet earth is that we're all telling our own story in a way do you know what I mean like yeah you, you could say oh I'm living a linear experience and I was born on this day and then I went to school at this place and then this happened and then I did this job and then this happened and then you know and then I'm going to die at this age or you could say I'm an infinite being having multiple um, you know, experiences across time zones and um, parallel universes and intersecting with other, you know, and it, it's infinite. Like the experiences I can have, like if you think about going to sleep at night and dreaming and daydreaming and the things that you're seeing and the flashes that come into your head, it's not, a, it's not really a linear experience. It's a kind of a wild ride of all of this stuff going on that you've got to kind of filter and work out. And in amongst that, you've got to work out, well, what's my journey? What's my story? So I think we all inherently understand this thing of like, you know, what's his name? There was that famous Joseph, um, Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. Mm. We're all on our own hero's journey in a way. So we're all, you know, 
we all relate to this idea of archetypes, which is why um, superhero stories are, are so popular because people want to relate to villains and heroes and epic mm. stories. And, it, you know, it comes from mythology and religion, whatever. And so I just think, you know, I just, I suppose I relate to that and I suppose I would like to write stories that other people can relate to and they get something out of it and it, it enriches their life, even if it's just an hour and a half in a dark room in a cinema. Sure. They have an experience and yeah. they walk away from that experience going, ah, oh, that was... That made me think differently. Yeah. That made me feel differently. Because I had those experiences. I was obsessed with going to the cinema. I used to work in cinemas when I was yeah. younger. I was obsessed with going to the cinema, particularly sitting in a dark room. That was like my favourite thing. Was, you know, not, not watching Netflix or TV at home. Yeah. I was a bit of a snob in, in that respect. I just, and still now, like even when a film comes on at IMAX, I want to go to the IMAX cinema, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to have that cinematic experience. I want to be immersed in a great film, in a great story. Mm. And what are the so, stories that really inspired you when you were younger, perhaps? You mean films or...? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, hmm, interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I love... I suppose I love some weird films. One of my, I love Stanley Kubrick as a director. I love The Shining, yeah. which is not really... You know, it's not like a... I mean, it's a masterpiece, for sure. He made a lot of masterpieces. Uh, as I said, I love The Big Lebowski. Um, I've watched, um, you know, I watched a lot of, originally I watched a lot of, um, I watched a lot of French cinema because I was obviously studying French. So I, I watched a lot of um, like new wave cinema. I watched like bloody Jean-Luc Godard who was this avant-garde filmmaker from the 60s and 70s. A lot of his films were actually really hard to watch, but they were interesting, you know what I mean? Okay. I can't say they were my favourite films, but, um, you know, he did interesting things, you know. So, yeah, I watched a lot of, um, I suppose, I love Chinatown, Roman Polanski. That's another film I really love. I love, um, I used to kind of get into a lot of the 1940s film noir as well. Like um, Casablanca, The Big Sleep, like Humphrey Bogart, those kinds of classic. And there were a lot of, um, so I watched a lot of films from the 30s and 40s because, you know, like um, Sound, I think Sound came about in about 1926 to 1928. Okay, cool. So prior to that in cinema, you didn't have sound. So, you know, it was very much a taking theatre or theatrics and filming it. So that's why you had, you know, people like Charlie Chaplin and um, a lot of those other great um, slapstick, masters of slapstick. They were big in the cinema at that time because everything was visual. So it wasn't until the late 20s that sound was introduced. So the 30s, I think they called it the talkies or whatever. The 30s was the era of cinema where people were able to write dialogue and that totally, you know, yeah. revolutionised Cinema. So you had a lot of great films that came out in the 1930s because people were like, oh, my God, these people can talk, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of really great, like, kind of, you know, crime thrillers and film noir from the 1930s to 1940s. You know, they call that the golden era of Hollywood. So I watched, I watched a lot of um, – when I was younger, I watched a lot of those films. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, recently – I love that film Parasite. Did you see that? The Korean, that, no. I can't think what his name is. I haven't watched so many films lately, but yeah, I mean, I, I just, 
loads of films I love. But I love comedies as well. I yeah. really love um, just laughing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, yeah, I remember reading in a book, and it's so obvious that you can't feel bad when you laugh. And I remember, because yeah, this was like a self-help kind of like traditional model, I remember reading and thought, yeah, of course, why don't I watch more comedy films? And it just hit me that all the TV and the media I was consuming was never comedy. Yeah. It just hit me, wow, it's so important just to immerse yourself in that bracket, even if you do prefer like an adventure or an action. Give yourself some lighter stuff sometimes. It's so important for the body and the heart and the soul. Hiring film screenwriter, for mm. example, I'd think of what themes I would choose what themes would you look to explore in your work? Like what topics would you touch upon? So I actually have been, I mean, it's kind of on hold at the moment, but I actually have been trying to co-write a television series with a friend of mine based on a real-life experience. And um, so the themes in that, we wanted to, this was based on, we made a documentary film about a gold mine. So this was a real experience we had, and we actually got access to this gold mine and the gold mine was located on what was called like a high altitude wetland. So it's, um, it was about a thousand kilometers above sea level. Um, it's like different sort of forest types intersect, but it's like a wetland. So it gets very wet and it rains a lot up there. Um, so they decided to put a gold mine on the top of this wetland, but it was also Aboriginal, traditional sort of custodian um, it wasn't like people lived there, but it was a like sacred site. Um, so when we made this film, it was a huge um, controversy and it was a fight and a whole lot of, um, you know, environmentalists. They were basically a bunch of group, what, we, what we called in Australia at that time, greenies, hippies and ferals. Now a feral was something that was very specific to Australian culture at that time which was someone that had sort of opted out of, partly opted out of living in the city and had a certain aesthetic, which was, they didn't look like a hippie. They had a lot of piercings usually, like uh, maybe dreads, maybe parts of their hair were shaved, a lot of yeah, piercings, dyed hair, uh, sometimes wearing um, kind of a glamorous looking, glamorous looking, but wearing like maybe a, you know, possum fur or something sure. or whatever, roadkill fur or something like that. Cause we have this thing in Australia called roadkill. So we wanted to take this story. So we basically had filmed this fight and all these protests and blockades they were called, that had taken place at this mine site over years. And we made this documentary film and it was actually on television in Australia. Um, and we wanted to turn this into a, or we still do want to turn it into a television series, which is about um, these warring sides. So it's like a typical Australian, you know, kind of country town that's discovered gold. And you've got the locals who are more sort of backward redneck and promoting and encouraging and supporting the mine. And then you've got the ferals or the, the environmentalists who come in to try and stop it. And then you've got um, the um, indigenous population. And anyway, basically we'd set up these all these different worlds. So basically it was going to be like a clash of worlds over this gold mine, but also over, and we really elaborated it and changed it a lot. So I, don't, I won't say too much, but basically right, sure. it was like subcultures or or um, communities that clash 
right, over okay. over resources, which is kind of you know a lot of what is happening in in Australia and in parts of the world is that you know as we move forward with issues around you know the environment and climate change, a lot of it's around fossil fuels, mining, resources, water, that kind of thing. So, so we wanted to do this sort of ultimate um, mining battle story. Right. Okay. And if mm. you could choose, so that's one thing. But I also sure. quite I'm quite into sci-fi. Okay. Um, quite what is like it about to, sci-fi? I don't know. I just find um, I, I had an idea for a story that I wanted to do on Mars, but I don't know. I just I, I like I, I've always liked sci-fi as a genre. Sure. Um, especially the. Um, yeah, I just think it's a it's a fun genre to. To play around to with. To play around with. Yeah. And if you had like a dream outcome for your uh, film slash television series about the gold mine, mm. what would it be? Like what message would you want to give? What impact would you want it to have? If you could choose, what would be your desired outcome? I think, you know, like as we were discussing earlier, I think the first thing you've got to do is if you want to make something for an audience, you have to keep in mind that, I mean, you can make a something for a niche market and you can appeal to a niche market. You don't have to do a mass audience market because, you know, it can be a bit dumbed down or boring. So it's not like you have to appeal to everybody, but I think you have to write or create something that is entertaining. Whether it's, you know, kind of scary one minute, funny the next or whatever it is, it just has to be entertaining. So my main thing is like I want to entertain people. And I don't mean that, I don't, I don't want to say maybe entertains the wrong word. It's like I want people to get into this show and go, I'm hooked yeah, and yeah. I can't wait to watch the next episode. You know what I mean? Like that, that's what happens to people when they get addicted to Netflix series. Yeah, they yeah. can't wait to watch the next episode. So that would be my primary aim was to write something that was really hooked people in and they fucking loved watching and sorry and wanted to watch the next episode. That was the first thing. But I suppose as far as, you know, I don't, you know, documentary can be all about, like, we've got to tell everybody an important message about social justice issues or the environment or whatever it is, and I've done that, and I think that's good. But I think there's a clever way to um, shed light on what's going on on planet Earth and with humanity in a more subtle form, like, couched in, cased in mm. um, entertainment. So people yeah. are going, I'm really getting entertained, but, oh... I'm going to go away and think about right, yeah, yeah. that scene or what that character said because now I'm starting to think about water or mining or, you know, why these people are attacking these people and stuff. So I think there's a way to uh, – I mean, you know what? A film that I've always found really interesting is The First Matrix. Mm, and I yeah. saw The Matrix Resurrection and it was just an abomination of a film. Was, did you see it? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> terrible. Anyway, but the first one is really interesting because I read something about it and it's, you know, it's called a Dharma film. And, you know, there's this whole thing about will you take the red pill or the yeah, blue yeah, pill yeah. and it's representing truth and, you know, going into sort of deeper levels of Buddhism. So I think nobody, when they first went to watch The Matrix, you know, the first time you watch The Matrix, you're not going, oh, what's the important message of this film? You're just going, oh, this is fucking great film and... Neo and do you know what I mean? But yeah. later you start reflecting on it and you're going, well, what does it mean? You know, what is who's Mr. Smith and what are these deeper layers of this world that they 
this, this matrix world that they go into and that's when you go and reflect on it. So for me that's effective storytelling is when you're not beating someone over the head with it. You've got a very complex story but it, the story in itself is amazing and fun yeah. and watchable and the characters are great and then you go away and go, hmm, that's, hmm. Yeah. And you have those deeper levels of contemplation about something. Yeah, rather than perhaps ramming it down people's throats. No, that's nobody wants that. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying, and I'm, as I'm, you know, just listening to you speak there, I'm thinking of times like The Matrix where I've come away and thought, oh yeah, what do they mean by that red pill or the blue pill? And yeah. I've started contemplating rather than, like I'm sure you've seen shows where they literally throw the message out there straight away, and you think, okay, cool, climate change, yeah, I know. Next, like, give me some action, for example. Yeah, no, I definitely, I'm getting the message here, and I'm trying to think what advice you'd give to people trying to get into a similar industry to you, perhaps screenwriting or anything else, what key tips would you give them if you have any? I think, I mean, I think we live in a fantastic, like with what you're doing now with your, with your podcast. Uh, even my son has his own YouTube channel. I mean, he doesn't have that many, you know, viewers, but he does it. And he's starting to edit his own videos. So Brilliant. I couldn't really do that. He's 10. I couldn't do that when I was 10. No, I couldn't cool. start a podcast or, I mean, I did public radio, so I had to go to a physical location and learn the skills and things to do it. So I think we live in a fantastic era where if you want to do something in, the, in media and you can get online and find whatever your platform is, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube channel or you want to, just film something on your iPhone or your smartphone or whatever and edit it yourself. Everything is at your disposal. Like it's a totally different area. You don't necessarily have to go to university or to a college to study those things. You can go and find an online tutorial on like how to make a, how to tell a good story, how to make a film, how to edit, how to use whatever, Final Cut Pro or Premiere or how to use a camera or how to turn your iPhone into a camera. There's just, everything is out there. So I think if you've got time and you've got passion, you can self-teach. So, I mean, sure, you can go and do formal courses if you want to, but it, like we live in this incredible era where you can just do it. Yeah. Maybe you have to save up a bit of money and get a bit of equipment, buy a microphone or buy a better camera or whatever. But if you've got, I mean, most of the things, you know, sure, I studied some things formally, but most of it was from just like, I want to do that, I want to learn that, I have a passion for that, so I'm going to do it. So I think... You know, you just have to allow yourself to follow your own passions. I mean, anybody who has a passion for something, they should just allow themselves to follow the passion, even if they can only do it one hour a week. Yeah, just yeah. do it. Why not? What's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. And then you'll always be, you know, inclined to do it. I, I think I saw some quote where it was, um, you know, like people won't follow their passion because they don't have the time, but the time will pass anyway. So even if you don't do it for that one hour a week, well, we'll go two years in the future. And if you even did the hour a week then you could have had you know 52 hours in a year it's something rather than nothing and at least if it's your passion you would genuinely enjoy it rather yeah. than just letting the time pass on it's things you find meaningless like I can't think of an example but you know exactly what I mean something that you're not really invested in I think you know when I was younger there were things that I wanted to do and I didn't do because I was looking outside of myself you know like we all do that and particularly when we're younger we look at ourselves from a I need to be validated from the outside, yeah, yeah. you know, like, and as you get older or you kind of come more into yourself, you start going, I don't care, actually. 
I just want to do what I want to do and I want to be who I want to be. And that's a great place to get to because you stop caring about what are other people thinking about you, what are they, how are they viewing you, what are they, you just go, well, I don't care. And you just start doing more what you want to do. And I think the earlier you can adopt, because I think I wasted a lot of years of my life thinking, oh, if I do this, people might think this about me. Yeah, or if yeah. I do that and fail at it, they're going to think that's bad and they're going to think I'm not capable of doing that. And sometimes I, I um, put too much importance on something that I should have just done it for the yeah. hell of doing it. So I think... You, if you don't treat things as a career or serious, you just treat it as something I like to do and I want to give it my best shot and I'm just, just going to give it a go and do it. Like I started learning um, salsa and bachata and I'm not that great, but I'm not trying to make a career out of it. I just did it as a hobby yeah, for fun. So fun, it's yeah. like do it as a hobby for fun and then if it turns into something more, that's great. But yeah. if you place too much importance on it, like this has to be my career and I have to be good at it and I have to be perfect at it, you'll bring too much like fear or self-conscious energy into it and you'll stop yourself from doing it rather than just, I like to do this, I feel passionate about it, therefore I'll go for it. Yeah, I feel like I've been there. Like, as yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, been triggered. <laughs> and how did you, like, were there any moments for you that stuck out where you were able to make that transition from perhaps caring about say external validation mm. to a point where you just do it for the sake of it because you enjoy were there any moments that made you just take the alternative approach I think it partly I think some people naturally go for everything they want and are not self-conscious and don't have fear or they push through the fear you know and they they reach their goals quickly because they just don't give a shit they just eyes on the prize that's what I want I'm going for it and everything else is background noise and they don't listen to it and then there's whatever other the other 80% or whatever the other 60% <laughs> that are too fearful or worried or influenced by their parents and think they should follow this path or that path or whatever 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 I don't think I've been the you know not like the the athlete the rock star or whatever the person who just had a straight line towards exactly what I don't think I've been that person I think I've done things that I wanted to do and I've certainly followed my heart and my passions throughout my life and I think that's just been a natural part of my personality but I think there's also been times where I got frustrated with my own lack of doing something and because I could see that I was being held back by my own fears or my perception of what other people might think of me and then I kind of got to a point where I reached almost like a threshold where I went ah now it's annoying me I don't care anymore and you sort of have a breakthrough moment and you just go ah, ah. you know what I mean it's like a point of frustration almost yeah. that you like can with comes the breakdown comes the breakthrough yeah exactly yeah. You, you almost get to that point of like well you know either I'm going to just give up on this or I just Go for it now. Yeah. It's a bit like standing on the edge of a cliff and you can jump into the, you know, like there's a, a deep pond and everybody's jumping off the, the rock into the water or whatever. And, you know, sometimes you've just got to like literally see the rock, see the water. Someone says, yeah, it's deep, you're fine. You see somebody else doing it, you go straight away. The minute you stand there and contemplate it and spend half yeah, an hour yeah. thinking about whether it's going to be a wise decision or not, it just—it's never the same moment because now you've calculated it. You just—you haven't 
taken that leap of faith. Yeah, and yeah. I think sometimes we just have to with some things in life, yeah, sure, maybe you'll hit the edge of the rock and die or whatever. That's your destiny. But most of the times you're just you're going to plunge into the water, but you've, you've got to like have that uh, trust and faith that they're doing it, they're fine, I'm going to do it, I'm not going to stand here for half an hour worrying about it. Yeah, for sure. Because I'm still going to do it, but when you actually come to doing it, now your energy is not going for it. It's like, I've really thought this through, I'm going to be okay. And it's a totally different energy, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know I do. And you can save half an hour if you just do it then, and boom, it's done now. Well, you could be sunbaking <laughs> on the rock or doing it again. Yeah, yeah. So I think we all have to learn from that of just like, yeah, sure, you have to take calculated risks in life, but I think sometimes it's the same thing with falling in love, you know? It's like I think sometimes some people, they go, oh, my God, I've met this person, I'm so passionate, you know, like in their heart. They, they feel this sense of like, oh, my God, love at first sight, da, da, da. and then they go away and they think about it and they go, I'm going to dissect it, I'm going to break it down, I'm going to journal it out, I'm going to write an essay about it, I'm going to think, I'm going to talk to my friends about it. And suddenly something that they felt as an urge in themselves becomes a, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't because of this reason and that reason and maybe they're maybe if I do this this will happen and maybe when they said that and did that they actually meant this and then all of this overthinking happens and then yeah. what we do is we go into our heads and we go I'm going to override my heart I'm going to override my soul or my spirit's urge that was there and in that moment I could have just gone for it and maybe if I'd gone for it in that moment, it all would have worked out well. Maybe six months down the line it wouldn't have, but maybe if I'd calculated and gone for it, it still wouldn't have worked out well six months down the line. But the thing is, I think we do a lot of this, I, I do, but when I was younger I would tend to just meet, and I mean we all have that moment when you meet somebody and you just go for it. Yeah. You don't have to go, oh, maybe we should, you know, wait for, it's like if you have that feeling, and it's the same thing with, um, career or something you're passionate about or you want to go on a trip somewhere it's just like you know one day you you want to be here and the next day you want to be there everybody goes but hang on you need to think about this and you're like no this is my soul's calling I need to just now do it yeah and I think we need to encourage people in life to just do that because I did that I certainly have done that in my life sometimes a bit too much actually but I don't regret it because you know I've lived an adventurous life and I haven't always lived a, you know, actually it's funny because a couple of my friends that did the tr more traditional life is, and in they bought a house and they yeah. stayed in the house and they had the 2.3 kids and the dog and the white picket fence and everything, um, you know, and they've been, some of them, happy and some of them have lasted and some of them haven't lasted. But um, one of my friends sort of said to me, like, wow, you've lived such an adventurous life and you've always been like that or something. I was like am I? And then I suddenly realized that, yeah, I was kind of the adventurous person that went off on an adventure. And it's also come at its cost, but I think everything in life comes at its cost. If you want pure stability and you want to stay in the one house with the one set of people, that also comes at a cost, which is sometimes freedom, your own freedom, or you might feel it's stuck or, or bored. Yeah. But then at the same time, if you're a wanderer and a traveller, you might feel lack of stability or a lack of roots or something. So everything 
everything comes at a price. It just it depends on who are you and what do you want. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just like tuning into, it's like there's no prescribed text for life. There's just the tune into your own soul purpose or journey and align to yourself and then go for it. Yeah, for sure. And even if it doesn't work out when you go for it, if yeah. it's your soul's calling, it's more authentic. So you will still get a valuable lesson from it. And it might lead you on to what you were really meant to do. Like, who knows, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. You can't tell in that moment, but from going on that process, you will find out. And I believe in those kind of serendipity and synchronicity things. I believe that, like, you can maybe, you know, originally in 2005, I got on a plane on a, you know, I bought a one-way ticket to Phnom Penh. But I didn't end up in Phnom Penh. I ended up in Vietnam. So my intention was like Southeast Asia and at the time I really thought it was Cambodia and Phnom Penh and very quickly after I realized it wasn't. So I was heading in the right direction. No. So you don't have to get it exactly right. You can just aim in a general direction. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with, okay, I aimed there and then when I got there I went, oh, oh, it's yeah, a bit yeah. wrong and adjust it. You know, you know it's, it's not like life has to be perfect. You just have to sort of, aim generally in the direction of what you think is is going to serve you and then and then go for it and then those other things you meet someone or something happens or you know something shifts and then it gets fine-tuned again or your path gets redirected and yeah. you know you, you kind of got to be willing to flow with those things and open to those changes that you actually have no control over no for sure and can i ask you about like your thoughts on concepts such as like manifestation and the secret because from this I also believe in the same I do believe mm. in synchronicities I do believe often you can go in the right direction but you can get put on a different path but I also believe that like and I believe if you think something and you really want it you can get it but I do believe you need to take action and this mm. is where when I look at concepts of manifestation I have a mixed kind of judgment yeah. on it can I ask you your thoughts on that yeah. whole kind of realm it's really a quagmire isn't it like yeah. I've really tried to understand this whole law of attraction and manifestation as well myself. I think everybody wants to. It's like the zeitgeist of the, you know, early uh, 21st centuries. Everyone wants to crack what is law yeah, of attraction. Yeah. You know, everybody has, you know, I mean, you, I open up my YouTube and there's some ad and some guy saying, if you want to know what the, how to, you know, manifest, manifest your dreams. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, okay. So, you know, I have watched and listened and read and, really contemplated this deeply and I haven't actually watched The Secret so I don't know that in detail however as I was saying earlier for me more as I sort of travel my journey and I did actually have a kind of weird I changed as a person in 2019 because I had a very weird experience that caused a kind of spiritual awakening in me so I there were a lot of huge shifts that took place in me. And at that time, I had really, it was really weird. It was like I was in one of those weird YouTube videos where there was like 11.11 was appearing and all of these yeah, yeah. kooky things. And people, I was telling people at the time and they thought I was mad. And I learned to keep a lot of it to myself in the end because what I was experiencing, I don't think a lot of people really related to and they just thought I was, you know, a bit woohoo. So I kept a lot of my own sort of spiritual quest and understanding about that kind of thing to myself. However, I will say the one thing I have done is try to know myself 
more and become more authentically myself because as I said I feel like not all people but a lot of people you know wear a mask of some sort and that is in a way how we're raised because we're put out into a public um, you know we put into from a very young age we're taught how to socialize with others you know so if you're in a bad mood you can't be in a bad mood you have to be happy and polite to Mr. Jones or whatever yeah, and yeah. pretend to be happy even though you want to go, I don't want to be here and I don't want to meet you and I don't want to shake your hand, I don't want to kiss you or whatever. Whatever you get forced to do in social situations. Um, and then you've got school and then you've got to like pretend that you're a certain way to get a job and all this stuff. So we all learn from a young age how to put on these facades to get what we want or like you... You, you go out and you want to flirt with somebody, we've got to sort of appear a certain yeah, way. And yeah, yeah. There's so many sort of layers. So I think what happens is that as you, and you're still quite young, but as you progress through life, you, you kind of layer up. You get all these layers on you and then they get to this point, some people just keep layering up and they keep those layers on them and they're almost impenetrable. They're just layer upon layer upon layer. Um, and then other people go, I'm going to start peeling back the layers now and get back to true authentic self. And that's what I've been doing. And I think in that process, as you're able to, however you do it, like maybe you don't have the layers, but maybe you're just not really in tune with who you are. I think once you become more in tune with who you are, right, which I call self-alignment. Mm. Once you become more self-aligned, in addition to that, Whatever you believe in, whether you believe in Allah or God or Shiva or Buddha or whatever you want to believe in, okay? Um, I don't, I respect a lot of those, you know, figureheads, but I don't really, I mean, I, I actually like Buddhism, but I don't believe in any sort of yeah, God. Sure. I don't personally. Um, however, I do believe in, I suppose, what is outside of free will because there's only a certain amount of free will that you can um, execute as a human being. So we all walk around with our egos going, well, I can do this and I can do that, but you can't because freak things happen. You walk outside and a tree falls down and squashes your bike and kills your best friend. I mean, you, you're not exercising free will there. Mm. Do you understand? So I believe in a kind of a universal law where there are certain things I have no control over. Whether you want to call that uh, God, the universe, spirit, source, destiny, sure. whatever you want to call it, it's outside of free will. I believe in now surrendering to, in a way, I suppose a chaos or a magic. It can be chaotic on one hand. Chaotic in the sense that you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. No, true. You know, I mean, you, you could lose your job or whatever. Things beyond your control. So I think once you stop trying to control the things you can't control and you get into surrender and a state of flow and you go, all right, now I know who I am and within my own sphere of how much I can, can tap into who I am as a soul spirit and my ego and my free will and my, my ability to exercise free will. Now with all of these elements, it's a bit like you're a magician now, you go, all right, well, with that, I need to flow and surrender. With that, I can exercise 
with my brain I can fine-tune to this frequency and the minute you just start getting into alignment with everything as it is that's when you kind of start manifesting because then you say all right well what is it that I want and then you go well I actually want okay sure you can go I want you know someone to deliver a briefcase with 100 million dollars in it yeah great okay that's not going to happen but if you start saying um, well I feel that doing this job or, or, or doing this kind of work or going to this place is right for me is part of what I'm meant to be doing um, I know I can do it I can visualize it I can feel it and you start getting into that energetic state somehow you start manifesting it but it has to be kind of it can't be like a just pie in the sky yeah, like yeah. I want a genie in a bottle to grant me three wishes and I think that's where people go wrong yes yeah, they wake up they're in a negative state of mind, they're in a certain um, way of living or whatever, and they go, oh, well, I want to make a wish, or, oh, well, it didn't happen the day after, therefore I don't believe in it, and it's, it's, it's bullshit. But it's not that, it is, as I said, it's kind of aligning to self, aligning to the universe, and being true to who you are and what you, and also, like, believing that you deserve, that you're worthy. Yeah, yeah. That you're equal and worthy to everybody else. So if somebody else is getting all of this abundance and whatever, so can you. It's just not that much of a, you know what I mean? So I do, a, yeah, a lot yeah. of, you know, like they talk about self-limiting beliefs and stuff. A lot of it is just people believe they're not able to have it. Yeah, okay. So they're cutting themselves off. So I think it's just about saying, well, who am I? What do I want? Okay. And then, as you say, supporting it with action steps. I mean, you can't just sit around and wait for the genie in the bottle yeah, to turn course, up. and yeah. You have to then go and support it with your action. Like, okay, I think I'm meant to go and save the elephants in Sri Lanka or whatever it is that you want to do and you start thinking about it and then the next thing you know you're looking at pictures of it on the internet next thing you go down the road to the cafe and there's a Sri Lankan guy at the cafe and you go that's weird but is that weird or is that now because you're starting to think about it and yeah you, yeah part of the vibration yeah. yeah so I always find cosmic things like that happen to me where I was you know thinking something and then you know, putting the thought out, you know, those thoughts are very powerful things. So it's it's about getting your thoughts in alignment with, you know, your true self. Because then I think, I don't know, some universal law or God up there will somehow be more likely to assist you in that yeah, journey. In your pursuit. So I suppose that's how I see it. I see. I don't know. No, I like that sense? take. No, no, definitely does. And as that you're speaking, I'm thinking, yeah, there's a lot of that that definitely does align. And it does come back to the concept of knowing thyself, I suppose, where that's where you, you're at your most authentic and you don't get trapped in these kind of like bullshit wishes of like genie in a bottle or hot air balloons and stuff. You can actually manifest like from a proper perspective, like from your actual authentic being. Exactly. Which is the key. Yeah. yeah, and tuning into what it is that you do really want because yeah. whatever is meant for you will kind of come for you. And also the other thing is like I had a lot of resistance before. Whenever I had things that didn't go my way or upset me, upset me or whatever, you know, I would fight against them or not accept them or be upset about them and create a lot of resistance. And I really learned, you know, through feeling my own, you know, that's like from Buddhism, it's like the, the root of all... Um, What's the saying? The 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 root of like life is suffering, basically, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But the minute you sort of accept that, but also you realize that the root of your suffering often is a state of 
resistance. Yeah. It's not acceptance of what is, you know. So once you get into the, it is what it is, okay, the tree fell down, whatever, that person died, everyone's going to die, um, that thing went to shit, that thing I thought I was doing is not happening anymore. If you sort of fight and rally against it all the time, you just create resistance and suffering in yourself. So the, the faster you can accept things and turn around and go, all right, that was a bit shit. Take a breath, grieve it for a moment if you need to, but then move on to the next thing. And that's, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm trying to be at. It's, it's very hard to achieve that. Of course, yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm trying to do because the more I just go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, whatever is yeah, actually yeah. a good motto for life. You just go, okay, whatever, next. I think I'm actually going to call the episode this. Yeah, whatever, next. And that's actually yeah, the yeah, yeah. Tagline. It's yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. much easier to move on to the next thing because, yeah. you know, we all get caught up in this, I, but I wanted it to be like this. Yeah. And you ruminate again and again and again and it's not going to change the outcome. Yeah, the yeah. outcome's already been, I'm still trying to learn this. It's good, way. actually. Yeah, whatever, next. <laughs> yeah, whatever, next. Boom, that's the tagline. And it leads me nicely to the final question, Salini, which is... You're a great interviewer, by Thank the you way. Very much. Yeah, you're very, a very good guest. Yeah. Very in the flow. Yeah, I'd love to have a round two of this maybe down the line. I think that'd be great. Philosophical musings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See where we're both at. We'll take the blue pill. <laughs> My final question is about the future. So what would you like to achieve perhaps in the next year or so? What would be your desired outcome for you, personally, professionally? Hmm. Uh, well, COVID has caused, like for so many people, it's caused me so much, caused me a lot of sort of destruction. So I've just sort of got myself stabilized again. So really, it's quite boring. In 2022, I already had made my choice, which was that I just wanted to be stable. Right. Financially, emotionally, um, just, just to be really sort of stable. Um, and I... Yeah, I think so. I think from a place of sort of being um, grounded and stable, you, back to this thing about knowing ourselves, once you know who you are from that place, you can then hatch a plan, you know, so you can be creative and spontaneous, but do it from a place of sort of, I suppose, internal stability. Yeah, sure. Do you know what I mean? I so, um, because sometimes you can be creative, but you can be chaotically creative. You can be like, oh, I'm going to do do that, and I yeah, sort of yeah, did yeah. it, and then there's no plan with it, or there's no sort of like uh, consistency with it. So for me, yes, I do want to be creative, and I do want to try and uh, do some more uh, personal writing. I want to try and revive my brands, but I'm doing it all from a place of a sort of feeling stable, grounded, and then consistent consistent action i suppose so yeah. it's i suppose it's applying what we're talking about with manifesting it's like yeah i know what i want and i'm going to consistently do it and build it so excellent so lots of things lots of creative things but yeah yeah and always remember stability is my key word strangely and so. yeah whatever next <laughs> i've always been yeah whatever next nice. but, but 2022 has been a bit more about Stabilize. Stabilize. And then, yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> Excellent. Really enjoy the Selene. Thank you so much. Thank you, too.